Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, my guest today is Catherine Lumas. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, thank you for having me. It's, it's um, nice to be asked. Um, so I'm, I was, I'll begin asking my guests how how did you get into this in this area? We're going to talk about the Punic Wars today and about Hannibal. No, it's not Hannibal Lecter from the TV series, but we're going to talk about Hannibal and the man in the fine row. So how how did you get these interests? Um, well, my main interest is in the history and archaeology of ancient Italy, so uh, really from the Iron Age through to the early Roman Empire. Um, and because the Punic Wars and the, the war in Italy particularly are a really pivotal point of, for, for Italian development, that, that was my main, main angle, um, because it, it's the point at which Rome really starts expanding from um, a regional power into, into, a, into a sort of global imperial power. Um, and that really changes uh, things quite, quite, quite considerably. Yeah, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about today, of course. But I'm, I, I want to ask, why did Rome have such a hate for Carthage when they really were the first one out there? So why did Rome hate, have this burning hate for Carthage? Um, well, this actually goes back quite a long way. Uh, it's got a long-term background because um, Carthage and Rome uh, were founded um, Carthage in the 9th century, Rome in the 8th century BC, uh, but by the, the 6th century they're really both developing as quite big powers in their respective areas of the Mediterranean, um, and that continues right through until the 3rd century, uh, when they really are the two big, by that stage, they really are the two big powers in the western Mediterranean. Um, and they are differentiated a little bit because Carthage's main interest in uh, their territorial interests are mainly in Western Sicily, uh, the Mediterranean islands, Corsica, Sardinia, uh, Eastern Spain, and it's very much more of a naval and commercial power than Rome. Uh, but Rome is very much the dominant power in Italy by, by the beginning of the third century. Um, and it's quite clear that they've, they've both been on each other's radar for quite a while. Um, ancient sources talk about at least two and possibly three treaties uh, between Rome and Carthage, of which the earliest dates to the end of the sixth century. And then there's one in 306, which is a disputed one, and then one in 348. Uh, and all of these are basically about demarcating spheres of influence and regulating trade or alliances between Carthage and Rome. Uh, so it's clear that they're both, they, they've both been on each other's radar for quite a while as being potential rivals. Um, and they're competing for dominance in the same areas. Um, and the point at which this really starts to kick off into active hostility is in 264 BC, when Carthage and Rome both get dragged into uh, a conflict between the Greek cities of Syracuse and Messana in Sicily. Um, and that escalates- Is this even, is this in Sulla's time or is it, no, this is not before Sulla is, right? 
Yes, yeah, this is uh, 264 yeah. to 241 BC, the so-called yeah. First Punic War. Um, uh, and ultimately that, that degenerates from a sort of minor squabble between two Greek cities into a, a full-on war between Rome and Carthage. Um, and at the end of that war in 241, uh, Carthage is defeated by Rome uh, and it receives quite a punitive peace treaty. Um, it's forced to cede all its territories in Western Sicily uh, and then later on, um, three years later, it's forced to cede uh, Corsica and Sardinia as well. Um, and it gets hammered with quite a, a big war indemnity. Um, the uh, initial figure is, is 3,200 3, silver talents, which is um, you know, well in excess of, of half a million pounds in, in uh, today's money. Um, uh, and then that, that's increased uh, four years later by, by an extra uh, uh, 1,200 talents of silver. So uh, Carthage is really quite harshly treated by Rome at the end of the First Punic War. Um, and that really sort of ramps up the, you know, the hostility between them. But they do um, tolerate each other in those early days, don't they? Yes, they do. Yes. I think the fact that they, they have rather different priorities probably helps because Carthage is very much a naval and commercial power uh, and its interests are really in the, the islands, uh, whereas Rome is really interested in building up power in, in Italy. Um, but then, you know, there comes this point where, where they really do end up in conflict and the fact that Rome really fights Carthage to a standstill and then imposes quite a punitive peace treaty means that um, you know, there's quite a lot of hostility um, there after that. So, Hannibal's father is uh, hates Rome as well. And but, why does he make his son involved in this? Why does he make his son swear to that he was going to hate Rome and grow up and hating Rome yeah. and defy Rome in a way? Yeah. Well, Hamilcar, Hannibal's father, is is an interesting case because he's very much Carthage's star general in the last phases of the First Punic War. Um, the family surname Barker is uh, said to derive from the Punic word for lightning, Barak, uh, because he had a success, very successful tactic uh, of lightning raids on the enemy. Um, but after he's, and he's the man who actually has to negotiate this really, really disgraceful peace treaty with Rome. So I think, I think that's part of the problem um, because Rome does drive, drive, drive this horribly hard bargain. Um, um, and it's said by the sources that he's particularly embittered by the way in which Rome then pushes the boundaries in uh, 237 and, and uses use a minor infraction of the peace treaty to, to, to impose further harsh terms um, and basically kick Carthage out of Corsica and Sardinia and increase the, the, the indemnity payments. Um, so that's one of the reasons why he's really quite cross with Rome. Um, and the irony of all this actually is that uh, the Barker family actually did really, really well out of, out, out of the First Punic War, uh, because apart from Hamilcar really making his military reputation, um, it also, in the, in the period immediately after the war, the Barker family really established themselves as the main political force at Carthage. Um, and Hamilcar is the man who really drives toward what happens next, which is that Carthage decides to build up a new territorial empire in Spain, uh, and Hamilcar is, is the man who leads that expedition. Uh, so Hannibal effectively grows up in Spain, he marries into Han a Spanish nobility, uh, and then ultimately when Hamilcar dies, he's succeeded first by his um, 
son-in-law, Hasdrubal, and then by Hannibal himself. Um, so the, the real big paradox is that although the Barker family were really anti-Roman, uh, they actually did quite nicely out of, out, 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 out of the, the war um, because, you know, that was the springboard which allowed them to lead this expedition to Spain. Um, but the story about Hannibal swearing revenge on Rome is, is an interesting one because um, quite a lot of sources have the same basic story that Hannibal, before he goes off to Spain, Hamilcar takes Hannibal, who's about nine at the time, to the sanctuary of Baal, or Zeus, as, as the Greek sources put it, and make him swear an oath against the Romans. Uh, but the problem is that we have different accounts of what that oath said. Um, some authors say that he was made to swear that he was going, never going to be a friend and ally of the Romans. Uh, and other accounts say that he was, he was made to swear eternal enmity. And obviously there's a huge difference between those. Um, and we, did, we really can't know which is true, uh, but, you know, obviously the latter makes a really colourful story. Um, so it suggests basically that Hamilcar saw Rome as an ongoing rival, uh, but it's not really very clear whether he was embittered uh, or whether the uh, story about the oath finds its way into the sources because just because it's a way of dramatising and personalising the conflict. You don't think it was personal to Hannibal, or was it? Um, I think it, pos it possibly was, uh, but I don't think there's any way of knowing because we don't know exactly what it was that he was made to swear to. Um, what, what sources do you believe, believe that he was made to swear to? Uh, I think the idea of not being a friend and ally to the Romans so, sound, sounds more plausible to me. And I think the idea that this was a sort of about a fire-breathing declaration of enmity is probably, a way, probably something that later sources pick up on as a way of trying to sort of dramatise Hannibal's personality. Um, but there's no doubt that the Barker family sort of saw the Rome as a big rival and the idea of Hannibal having this sort of enmity against Rome is, 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 is you know, has a grain of truth in it. It's just that I think the sources probably, probably embroider it quite a lot. So does he have, he has, seems to have quite a reputation to live up to from his father. Do you think he's effective in some way that he wanted to live up to the, his father's reputation as a general? Yeah, I think it possibly did, because one of the things that happens after the defeat in 241 is that, you know, Hamilcar really establishes himself as this sort of towering political figure as in, in, in Carthage and then leads this big expedition to Spain. So, they, he, you know, his father really is a sort of leading man. And I, I think it's not just living up to him as a general, but just sort of living up to his, you know, this huge reputation. Um, which again is in some ways ironic because of course you know in he, you know historically Hannibal is far more famous than Hamilcar is the, yeah. you know, in the long term. So how does it come across to build up an army and when how, well, actually I want to go a little further back because how does it grow up? How does it train to become a general in the, from its early days to, until it managed to find this army um, fight for him. Well, I think this is because because he's basically taken to Spain by his father as quite a young child. He's obviously trained up, you know, because his father, you know, leads the conquest of Spain using uh, effectively the 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 early Phoenician and Carthaginian colonies along the coast as 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 you know the entry point, and then they build up um, quite a, an extensive territorial holding in Spain. Uh, so basically, he's he's kind of trained up by his father, I think, um, and then subsequently by his brother-in-law Hasdrubal. Um, but because 
you know, this is a sort of fairly, you know, Hamilcar and Hasdrubal are leading quite a, quite a big military operation from the, from the word go. They already have a substantial army. Um, uh, Hasdrubal is by 224, seems to have built up uh, the Carthaginian army to about six, 60,000 infantry and 8,000 cavalry. Um, and uh, where they're getting these troops from is an interesting question. Um, some of them come from Carthage, some of them come from Carthage's other allies in North Africa. Um, Spain seems to be a mixture of Punic settlements, uh, places like Cadiz, um, ancient Gades, um, and Cartagena um, uh, along the coast. Um, uh, but inland, uh, the native Iberians and Celt-Iberians uh, seem to be ruled as a sort of Carthaginian protectorate. And it's probably probable that the terms of that protectorate means that they've got to give troops to Carthage's army. Um, so it's a, it's quite a mixed bag of um, Carthaginians, various other forms of African troops. Um, Numidian cavalry is a, is a big thing, um, supplemented by Spanish troops and also quite a lot of mercenaries, um, particularly drawn from Gaul. Um, so basically Hamilcar and then Hasdrubal have quite a big army to start with. So Hannibal's not starting from scratch, uh, but he does by two, 219 BC, does seem to have been, been reinforcing that army in, res in readiness, uh, because we know that he took 59,000 troops to Italy with him, uh, although there were heavy casualties crossing the Alps yeah. and quite a lot of desertions. Um, so the, 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 the Carthaginians in Spain already have a substantial army, and then, then Hannibal simply adds to that. Was it easy for the troops to follow Hannibal? Did they believe in his cause? Was it easy for him to convince them to follow me? I'm going to take on Rome, you're going to march. <laughs> yeah, um, there's a really nice quote from, from Livy, which um, somewhere buried in my notes, if I can find it. Um, yeah. um, uh, where, where he saw, he says that it, when when Hannibal first pre presents himself to um, uh, his troops, uh, uh, Livy describes him as being uh, the troops are seeing him as being like Hamilcar in his youth, given back to them. Um, and then he goes on to say, well, he had the same bright look, the same fire in his eye, the same the same, the same cast of countenance, the same features. Uh, so both the personal charisma seems to have been quite important uh, and also the connection back to Hamilcar. So that it does seem to be, have been very much a sort of loyalty to the dynasty as well as just to Hannibal himself. So how does it come across getting the bright idea to, idea to bring elephants to Italy? Um, well, the elephants are not peculiar to, to Carthage. I mean, everyone associates Car 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 you know, the, the Hannibal and the elephants because yeah. of the story of taking them across the Alps. Uh, but in fact, elephants are fairly standard in Hellenistic armies throughout the Greek East in this in this period. And in fact, it's not the first time they were used in, in warfare in Italy, because the um, Greek general, well, the pirate general Pyrrhus, uh, who fought in Italy in the early third century, he came, he was invited, he was invited to head by the Greek city of Tarentum on the south coast of Italy to come to Italy to help the Tarentines in the war with Rome. Um, he had elephants, um, so... But, so. but it seemed to me when I read up, read, up, read about Hannibal and the, and the elephant that this, this was a shock to the Romans. But if it was normal during this time, is this true that it really was a was a shock to the Romans? So if it used that Hannibal used elephants, or uh, is that think... are those sources wrong? 
yeah i don't i don't i don't think it was a terrible shock uh because like i said they had they had fought against an army that used elephants in the, the in the 280s um but they weren't routine in italy so they would be unusual um and you know obviously they they had quite a quite an impact because we have things like um there's, there's a very nice etrusca etra, 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 piece of etruscan pottery which which show, shows a picture of an elephant you know carrying a load of mounted troops uh, on it in, its, in a carrier on its back uh, which is produced in Etruria in the third century BC so obviously the you know the elephants are, are sort of there as they have they have sort of impact put it that way um, but what we what's more more difficult to get a, hand, a handle on is how effective they were um, because we know that most of them just didn't survive the crossing of the Alps yeah um, and uh, we don't they seem to have been quite vulnerable to the colder climate in Italy. Um, they're really only effective on level ground. Uh, and they also seem to have suffered a lot of casualties because one of the things that when you read through people like Livy's account, um, you know, every time Hannibal gets reinforcements, he needs to have more elephants sent over. Uh, so you get you get the impression that the Etruscan, the, the, sorry, the, the, the elephants are not, not, not all that robust in, um, you know, when, when it comes to operating in Italy. And they certainly wouldn't have been effective in mountainous or hilly areas. You needed needed level ground to have a yeah. a sort of effective um, elephant attack. So were the were the elephants kind of like ancient worlds, so way of, way of tanks in a way? They were kind of like the ancient tanks. Yeah, a bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had a look when you when you sent me a list of questions to see if I could find out how Hannibal actually used them, and there's not really an awful lot of information about how he what he actually did with the elephants. Um, we know that when Pyrrhus was in Italy fighting in the early third century, the way he used his elephants was to spread them out and put all his lightly armored troops in between them um, uh, and use them to support the light armed troops. But we don't know whether Hannibal did the same thing or not. Um, so I think rather than the elephants being a, a secret, the big secret weapon, um, you know, the impression you get reading accounts of the battles is that the troops that really had a huge impact uh, were actually Hannibal's cavalry. Um, he had really skillful um, and really robust Numidian cavalry, and the Roman army wasn't particularly strong on cavalry. Um, Ro Romans basically were. Their, their standard tactic was heavy infantry. Yeah, it was just um, pure in the gen general to use horses, right? In the in the Roman army. Yeah, I mean they, they they did have some cavalry, but it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't very much. And their their big fighting force was was you know the legions, the heavy infantry. Um, and the other thing is that uh, the Italian, uh, the way the Rome Rome controlled Italy when after it had conquered it, uh, wasn't by imposing rule. It was by making alliances so that the um, what you ended up with was a network of alliances between between Rome and other Italian states by which they were protected by Rome, but they had to send troops to the Roman army. Um, so apart from the Roman legions themselves, most of Rome's troops were actually other Italians. Um, and they tended to fight in a very similar style to Rome, um, you know, with an emphasis on heavy infantry, infantry and not much cavalry. Um, so when, when Hannibal turned up with you know all these really skillful Numidian horsemen you know that 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 was a real problem and that that actually seems to be how how the how, how he won most of his early battles 
So, do you think the elephants was just, I want to talk a little bit more about them, but do you think that they were kind of a psychological thing as well, not just for use in warfare, but a kind of psychological toll on the Romans? Yeah, I think they probably were, because, like I said, the, the, the Romans, you know, had had some experience of elephants before, but it was quite some years earlier, and most of the troops wouldn't have seen these beasts. Um, so I think I think probably they did have, um, you know, a psychological impact. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, even today, you know, if, if you talk about Hannibal, people automatically seem to be associating with element, elephants, shows that they, you know, they became very iconic. Um, but I, I think it's more, a, as you say, a sort of, I, I, you know, an iconic and psychological thing rather than something which had, you know, huge military significance. So, uh, well, how did they get the log logistic of crossing the Alps? And what was it like for the, both the troops, el the elephants, and Hannibal's cavalry as well? Um, well, the, 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 cro the crossing of the Alps took um, massive amounts of casualties by Hannibal because um, we, we don't, I don't think we know exactly which route he used. I mean, lots of, lots of people have speculated about this, but we don't, we don't really know. Um, but we do know that sources say that he took 59,000 troops to Italy with him, and that he only had 26,000 by the time he got there. Um, and that um, when he was crossing the Alps, he ran into bad weather, um, so that the, the, you know, there was a lot of snow and a lot of ice. Uh, he lost a, lot, lost a lot of horses and a lot of elephants and, and also a lot of supplies. Um, so it, it, it was quite attritional. Um, you know, it was quite difficult to get across the Alps. Um, and by, by the time, you know, he got into Italy um, between, you know, bad weather accidents and I think a lot of the mercenaries simply turned around and deserted, um, he'd got a much smaller army than the one that he set out with from Spain. So what is the Ro what is Rome's reaction to Hannibal when they hear about him coming across the Alps and is ready to take on Rome? Um, well, the initial strategy was actually to try and push back and fight in Spain and in Africa, um, because the, the, the cause of the war uh, was um, basically um, Rome breaching an, another treaty with Carthage um, in uh, 226 or possibly 225, they, the two powers had signed what, what's known as the Ebro Treaty, which was an attempt to demarcate um, Roman and, and Carthaginian spheres of interest. Um, Carthage was supposed to control the, the areas south of the Ebro and, and Rome and not come north of it and Rome not to go south. Um, but then the city of Saguntum, which is just north of Valencia and therefore well south of the Ebro, actually appealed, was besieged by Carthage and then, then appealed to Rome for help. Uh, and of course, the Ro Rome should have really decently said, couldn't possibly, you know, this would breach our treaty, but it didn't. It's, it, sent, it sent assistance to Saguntum, and that, that's what caused the war. Um, but, so the, the initial idea was that um, uh, one consul was sent to um, North Africa, and uh, the other consul, Scipio, was sent to Spain to, to you know, punish Hannibal for sacking Saguntum. Um, but by the late summer in, of 218, Scipio realised, uh, as he was crossing the River Rhone on his way to Spain, that Hannibal had pulled a fast one and that he'd outflanked him and was heading for Italy. Um, and at that point, um, he 
split his army. He'd sent his brother ahead to Spain with half his army and, and turned back to, to protect Italy with the other half. Um, uh, and the interesting thing there is that uh, the Roman Senate uh, still seems to be more keen on uh, pushing Carthage out of Spain than in anything, than, than anything else, because um, the portion of Scipio's army that goes off to Spain is, is left to you know, get on with it and, and fight in Spain, uh, whereas Sempronius is recalled from Africa to, to protect Italy. So there seems to be quite a lot of political indecision uh, at Rome over strategy in the first they don't, the So they don't really see Hannibal as a threat at this point? Um, well, Scipio obviously realises he was a threat, but the, the Senate in Rome uh, seemed to want to prioritise the war in Spain. Um, mm. On the other hand, they do recall the, this, the, the other consul who'd been sent to Africa, so clearly they're aware that there's a threat, but at the same time, you know, the emphasis at that stage, very early stage of the war, still seems to be on fighting in Spain. And it's only really after Hannibal gets into Italy across the Alps that um, they have to suddenly start regrouping and, and think again. Yeah. Um, how close does it get? Because it would get almost at the Rome's door, but what changes? How, why does it have to return? And what changes that it don't get a march in Rome? Um, one of the weird things about, about the Second Punic War is that we don't actually know what Hannibal's main objective was. Um, I mean, it might say, it might, it, I mean, the, the obvious thing is to destroy Rome, but he, mm. he doesn't. He, as you say, he very notably doesn't march on Rome uh, because after he comes across the Alp, he, Alps, he gets the upper hand quite quickly in three early battles uh, in, again, at Ticino, at Trebia, which is mainly a cavalry battle and at Trasimene, where the Roman consul gets himself trapped by Hannibal uh, and destroyed. Um, but at that point, he doesn't walk, march on Rome, even though the road's clear. He just goes straight down through Etruria and Umbria and into Campania, which is south of Rome. Mm. Um, so we don't really know what Hannibal's aims actually were. Um, but it's, he does get right to the Rome's front door, so to speak, doesn't right? Um, not particularly, no. Uh, that's, that's the very strange thing about it. Uh, because his, his aim seems to have been to break up Roman control of Italy uh, by dismantling mm. the, Roman, the Roman's uh, alliance with the, the, the Italian allies rather than anything else. Because he, even after Cannae in 216, which is, you know, really Rome's lowest point, yeah. um, he doesn't go, he doesn't march on Rome. He basically just set up, sets up camp at Capio, which is quite a way south of Rome, um, and then start, starts fighting, fighting in the rest of Italy. Um, and in fact, one of his uh, one of his own general one of his own generals uh, apparently, according to our sources, uh, turned around and said to him that he was he was great at fighting battles, but rubbish at planning a war because he, mm. you know he really ought to be marching on Rome, shouldn't he? And, and Hannibal just refused. Um, so it's 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 the conquer, conquer, conquering Rome itself doesn't actually seem to be part of the game plan. It seems to be dismantling Rome's power base by. Uh, destroying the alliance network of alliances with the rest of Italy, which is what he's prioritizing. So let's talk about the Battle of Cania. But but first, I want to know what, what, what how many troops does he have left after the crossing of the Alps and losing losing all the troops there? And what how does what how does the Battle of Cania go? Um, well, he, he, he had, uh, so sources say that he had about 26,000 troops left once he came across the Alps, but he does receive reinforcements from Carthage at fairly regular intervals. Um, 
one of his problems, of course, is that he's got quite a long supply chain, um, you know, and reinforcements and supplies have to come all the way from North Africa, whereas mm. Rome has it has has, the, has you know extra troops and, and supplies on their doorstep. Um, so I think by by Canai, his uh, recruit, he's got more troops than he had when he came across the Alps. Um, but it's a really pivotal moment because it's very much Rome's heaviest defeat. And it seems to have been caused by political indecision at Rome. Um, after Trasimene, the year before Cannae in 217, uh, Rome had a bit of a change of tactics. It, it had appointed um, a general called Fabius Maximus, whose tactic was to refuse battle and just sort of shadow Hannibal around or make Hannibal march, march around shadowing him and basically wearing Hannibal down, just using up troops and resources uh, rather than having a pitched battle. Um, but the Senate wasn't very happy with this and they undermined Fabius, firstly by giving his con colleague, the other consul, the Minucius equal status, which really undermined his authority. Um, so it, then, did, the, did the Senate look at this as the coward's way of tactic, fighting a war, in a sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fabius got a bad reputation because people thought that he wasn't sort of standing up and doing his duty as a good Roman. Mm -hmm. And Minucius had a much more direct approach. Um, and then both of them handed over command to somebody called Quintilius Verus, uh, who was the man in charge of Cannae. And he, he, as generals go, he was pretty useless, to be honest. Mm. Um, because what happened at Cannae was that um, Hannibal effect effectively pulled the trap. He put, he drew his his troops up in a kind of crescent shape, yeah, um, with his weakest um, troops in the centre. Rome marched forward. Um, and the, the center, the Carthaginian center, just just retreated and retreated and retreated slowly. Uh, and the horns. If I remember correctly, the, the other troops goes yeah around them. And yeah, yeah, they, they, the horns, basic, basically the horns of the crescent just elongate until they until they basically trap the Roman army in the middle. Oh. Um, uh, and th this this is actually typical Hannibal tactics because one of the things that Hannibal really seems to be good at is. Um, you know, scouting his ground, um, uh, using his ground to, to, you know, lure armies into traps. Um, he did, did it with um, the Flaminius and Trasimene, where he just lured him into onto a, a spur of narrow ground, so he's trapped between a range of mountains and the lakeshore. Um, uh, so Hannibal's actually quite, quite, quite got quite a reputation as a kind of trickster. You know, he's somebody who's quite good at sort of setting ambushes, springing traps. Um, also, somebody who does his homework, he's, he's good at scouting the ground. Um, but the, the real fallout from Cannae is, is, is actually what it does um, diplomatically, because this is the point at which Rome really wobbles. Um, the core of the alliance with Italy, uh, which are a series of colonies founded by Rome, um, hold firm. Uh, but quite a lot of Rome's allies in central and southern Italy at that point decide that Hannibal might be the better bet and break their alliance with Rome and defect to Hannibal um, for a whole range of reasons. I mean, some of its resentment of Rome for removing their independence, uh, some of its military pressure, um, having a Carthaginian army camped on your doorstep is really quite persuasive. Um, sometimes it's politically op political opportunism. You know, factions within a community might see, um, well, if the opposing faction supports Rome, we could support Hannibal, make an alliance with him and, and, and gain power that way. Um, so 
this is the point at which Rome's control of Italy really starts to wobble. And it also militarily opens up southern Italy to Hannibal and leaves Rome fighting on a lot of different fronts. Um, but this is the weird thing about Hannibal because he doesn't attack Rome. Um, the biggest city to defect to him is, is, is Capua, which is one of the most powerful and richest cities in Italy, in central Campania, and basically goes there, sets up a base and uses that as his campaign headquarters. Um, so that's one of the reasons why scholars think that his tactics aren't really to capture Rome itself. Uh, it's to um, undermine Roman control of, of Italy. Mm. Um, so, yeah, not wrong. Um, no, I was just going to say that the, the other thing which happens around about this time is that Hannibal makes an alliance with uh, Philip V, the king of Macedon, mm. against Rome. Um, and one of the things that uh, seems to be part of that alliance, or at least according to the Greek historian Polybius, writing uh, in the second century BC, is that um, they cook up a plan between them to leave Rome as a sort of Carthaginian protectorate in Italy. Um, so again, we, we get the sense that um, it isn't about dismantling Rome, it's about um, you know, curbing its power and taking it, taking its power away um, and leaving it as a kind of satellite state of Carthage. So he seems to be doing quite well at this point with getting alliances, every, mm -hmm. people ditching Rome and joining him instead. So what changes? Why does he have to return to Carthage and kind of admit this feat? Um, well, this seems, he seems to have been really on a sort of upward trajectory until about 212. Um, but between 212 and 209, everything starts to, to unravel. Uh, and I think it's partly that, um, you know, he's fighting in a foreign country. Um, he's got, you know, supplies have to come in from Carthage. Uh, or what he can't see is locally has to come in from Carthage. His reinforcements have to come in from Carthage, whereas Rome you know, has, has them more or less on, on, on their own doorstep. Um, and he, it becomes clear that he doesn't have the resources to protect his new allies. So some of his Italian, new Italian allies start reverting to an alliance with Rome. Um, he ends up having to fight on a lot of different fronts, which, um, you know, the war fragments into a lot of different micro campaigns uh, throughout central and southern Italy. Um, uh, the alliance between him and Philip of Macedon though, doesn't really work out as he'd planned. Um, one of the things that may, I think, might be significant is that although Hannibal's army uh, has a much, much greater variety of different types of troops um, than the Roman army, and that, that in the early years of war that gives them a bit of an edge, um, they're also much, you know, they're quite a disparate lot. They're not not, not as cohesive as the Roman army uh, because the Romans and the Italians do seem to have quite a, a, a strong sense of, um, you know, a basic Italianness or, or sort of kinship. Yeah. Um, a lot of, lot of talk about um, the concept of, um, in Latin, consanguinitas, the idea of shared kinship. Um, I just, like, sort of just would like to add that, that uh, we talked about the Roman army in the previous episodes. So mm. if you would like to check, to check it out, go and to the listener, go and check it out after this episode. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, 
but that that I think is part of the problem that um, the Italians start to think that the Carthage, you know, faced with the Carthaginians, they suddenly realise that they, you know, even the ones that have decided to defect to Hannibal and, and don't like Rome all that much, decided the Carthaginians look a lot more foreign and more threatening than the Romans do and start having a rethink. Um, and at this point, I think Hannibal actually thought that if he put enough pressure on Rome, it would make peace. Uh, because there are there are several attempts to make several attempts to negotiate peace, um, and uh, but the Roman Senate doesn't want to know; it just declines. Um, you know, it's a, it's a big thing in Rome that you don't you know, don't negotiate with your enemies. Um, so I think he's quite he's a bit disappointed by that. Um, and, and then there's a bit of a wobble where things flip the other way in two two o eight and two o seven, uh, when Carthage gets some more reinforcements in from Spain. Uh, Roman allies start to get very worn down and can't supply their full quota of troops to the Roman army. Um, there's a certain amount of an arrest against Rome in Etruria, which has previously been loyal. Uh, but Rome actually manages to face all that down. Um, uh, the army that's uh, the Carthaginian army were coming in from Spain as reinforcements is, is intercepted and defeated. Um, and Hannibal just gets in the end ground down by supply problems and the fact that the Romans is are being very intransigent. Um, so by 205 BC, his network of new allies in, in Italy is starting to unravel quite considerably. Um, Rome is starting to re, either reconquer or, or voluntarily be rejoined by all its Italian allies. And Hannibal just gets pushed further and further back into Calabria in the tour of Italy. Um, and then in 204, uh, Rome invades Africa and Hannibal is recalled because um, obviously he's needed to, to help defend Carthage. So that's basically the, you know, kind of the end of his campaign in Italy. So how does, what, well, how does he pass away? Does he just grow old or does he die in battle? Um, no, he actually has quite a long career after the, the end of the, the war. Um, where the war ends is that um, in 204, um, the Roman general Scipio, who's fought a, ser a series of brilliant campaigns in Spain and conquers Spain, uh, comes back to Rome and he persuades the Senate to let him in invade Africa. Uh, and that's the point at which Hannibal is recalled. Um, and uh, in the end, uh, Scipio fights a, a very divisive, decisive battle at Zama, which completely obliterates the Carthaginian army. Um, Carthage is forced into an unconditional surrender uh, with quite heavy terms. Um, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. Um, uh, again, uh, deprived of its fleet, it has to see part of its territory. Um, it, it can't make war anymore without, without Roman permission. Uh, and then it has to give Hulfa hostages and pay more reparations. Uh, but at that point, Hannibal actually is, is, one of, is still one of the leading men in Carthage. Um, he's not just a general, he's become he's quite an accomplished statesman. And he actually may, remains the main political leader at Carthage until 195. Um, he gets himself elected as Suffet, uh, which is a chief magistrate, the equivalent of a, the Roman consul. Um, he's responsible for paying off the war indemnity to Rome, um, which he somehow manages to do without even raising taxes. Quite neat trick. Um, and he also introduces a series of political and financial reforms, um, which may actually have been part of his undoing because he's also discovered to have been in negotiation with Antiochus III, the king of Syria, who's an enemy of Rome. Um, and Rome gets wind of this and asks for him to be handed over. 
And at that point, he realizes that he's annoyed enough other members of the Carthaginian elite not to have the support of them. Uh, so he goes off into exile. Um, and he basically hangs around, he, he, actually, he actually moves to Syria. Um, so I think it's likely that he really was plotting to with Antiochus. Um, and he tries to hatch various plans to revive the conflict. Um, he's said to have planned a coup to oust the program government of Carthage, uh, possibly try to interest Antiochus into funding a reinvasion of Italy. Um, and those don't come to anything, but Rome is really nervous of him um, for really quite a long time. Um, you know, there the are periodic scares in Italy about the possibility of Hannibal reinvading. Um, and in fact, he ends up as a commander of in Antiochus's navy. Um, there's a war uh, in in the war with with Syria. Rome is allied with the the, the island of Rhodes, um, and Hannibal leads Antiochus' na navy in a battle uh, with the combined Roman and Rhodian navies, uh, which Rome wins, um, and that gives Rome control of the the Aegean and, and the wherewithal to invade Syria. Um, uh, but uh, the upshot of all this is that when Rome finally defeats Antiochus in, in 189 and forces him to make peace, um, Hannibal decides he'd better move on just in case he gets handed over. Uh, so he goes off to Crete, uh, to Armenia, and he finally winds up in Bithynia, uh, which is a Hellenistic kingdom on the north coast of Turkey. Um, um, and at that point, Rome seems to have put pressure on Prusias, the king of Bithynia, to hand him over. Uh, but in fact, he dies before that can happen. Um, and that's somewhere between 183 and 181 BC. We don't, we don't know the exact date. Um, we also don't know the exact circumstances because there are several stories about this. Um, basically, he died of poison in some shape or form. Uh, but the second century Greek writer Pausanias says that it's actually natural causes, that it's sepsis from an infected wound. Um, or cut. Um, Again, I want to ask you, what, what sources do you believe in this? Um, I don't think there's any way, any, any, way, any way that you can tell. I mean, the sepsis from an infected cut sounds perfectly plausible, but there are other sources that say that he was poisoned by Prusias um, uh, to carry favour with the, with the Romans, or that he committed suicide uh, to avoid being handed over. Um, uh, the problem is that all our accounts of his death are really quite late. Um, uh, the earliest one we have is Livy, who's writing in the first century BC, the, the period of the Emperor Augustus. Um, all the rest are second century AD sources, so it's, it's really quite difficult to uh, work out um, you know, who, who, might have had, who might have had access to accurate information. Um, I mean, the idea of suicide rather than being handed over sounds, sounds equally plausible. Um, I'm less persuaded by the idea that he was poisoned by, by King Prusias because I can't see what the, what the motive would be there. But um, if he'd been cornered and wanted to avoid being taken alive, then suicide might be a possibility. But uh, equally, given you know, the medical knowledge at the time, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, a cut or wound that turned, turned septic. Um, uh, you know, it's the sort of thing that, that is plausible, but then, you know, you can see how that might get translated into the sources yeah. as being, you know, poisoned by, you know, either by suicide or, or by uh, nefarious deeds by Prusias. So 
what is Hannibal's legacy in history and why is he so well known that almost everyone who looked in, at least in at least those who looked into Roman history knows about him and knows about his elephants mm -hmm. and knows who he is most people should do so why what is his legacy um well I think the reason why he's so such an iconic figure is because of this very daring march over the Alps which is you know, not not what you'd expect any rational general to do at that particular point, and particularly not with a with a with, a, with an elephant corps in tow. Um, but the in terms of the the actual political legacy, um, the reason why it's so, why why the Hannibalic War is so important is that um, effectively it puts Carthage, you know, really on the road to ruin. Uh, but it also is the point at which Rome launches itself as as a global superpower. Um, I mean. The opening paragraph of Polybius's history of, of um, this period is to say that Rome's greatest achievement was that he, he, he conquered the entire known world, as he as he puts it, in under fifty three years. Um, he calculates that as two nineteen to one sixty seven BC, um, and obviously Hannibal is, is 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 the point, the starting point of that. It's his invasion of Italy that really kicks things off. Um, so. Basically, by defeating Carthage, Rome's removed a major rival. Um, Hannibal and Rome, during the war, both have built up a network of, a network of, of alliances, um, which draw Rome into a series of other wars, um, particularly Hannibal's alliance with Philip, Philip V. Um, and that has the effect of um, you know, basically launching Rome into as a world empire because it ends up, you know, conquering the, you know, not not just Spain and North Africa, but the the, the entirety of, of the Greek Mediterranean. Uh, so it goes from basically having two provinces, the western half of Sicily plus Sardinia and Corsica at the beginning of the war, to controlling most of the the Mediterranean world um, as a result of of, of the Hannibalic War. Um, the flip side of that for Carthage is that it's really on the road to ruin at this point. It gets a yeah. gets a huge war debt. Um, Rome is really on its case. Um, the uh, second century BC statesman Cato uh, is said to, you know, finished every 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 speech in here that he ever made in the Senate uh, with. Um, you know, or irrespective of his topic, with the statement, you know, furthermore, gentlemen, I think the Carthage should be destroyed. Uh, so, mm. you know, there was a faction in Rome that was really out to completely crush Carthage. Um, and they really got their way in 146 when the city was razed to the ground after a third war. Um, and um, a curse was put on anyone who ever rebuilt it. Um, yeah. You know, so they were really out to get Carthage. Um, it was actually rebuilt as a Roman city by the Emperor Augustus, but not until the 20s BC. Um, and in fact, there was a in 1985 there was a symbolic peace made between Rome and Carthage when the, the mayors of the two modern cities signed a signed a symbolic peace treaty. Um, so effectively, it's a, it's the pivotal point where you know really Rome really takes off as a major power, and Carthage is you know pretty much nowhere. Um, but Hannibal himself, uh, I think the reason why he's an iconic figure is. Um, you know, because the war is very much his project. Um, you know, he, he makes this sort of completely daring and unexpected move into Italy rather than fighting in Spain, which is what everyone thinks he's going to do. 
Um, and he's clearly this very larger than life character that all these stories and anecdotes um, uh, fit around. Um, uh, you know, as Livy says that he's, he's obviously massively charismatic. He has this sort of big, you know, he's a big larger than life character in terms of how he commands his troops. And I find I find it in for me personally when you know, read about the sack of Carthage is I find it interesting how how the Romans looked at everyone else as barbarians, but when they the way they handled the sack of Carthage and the way the atrocities they commit there mm. it's it's kind of barbaric in itself so it's kind of ironic how they call everyone else barbarians but the way they treat their rivals and the way they treat treat the cartridge when they sacked cartridge is kind of barbaric, in my opinion, at least barbaric. Yeah. Um, well, Rome's interest, Rome's, Rome's relations with sort of non-Romans is actually really interesting because, I mean, I think Carthage was it kind of becomes a special case because the rivalry becomes so intense and so, uh, yes, quite personal and so very they, they become very very sort of worried about the possibility that Carthage is going is going is going to come back. Um, you know, you, you see this in, in the 180s, 190s and 180s, that periodically there are sort of complete panics that sweep Italy, that Hannibal's going to reinvade. Um, and I think, you know, Cato obviously wanted Carthage just gone completely, um, which is why Rome picked an, another an, an excuse for another war in, in, in 146. Um, but it's in terms of in general terms, Rome doesn't tend to look at other peoples as barbarians. They tend to be, you know, the, the Greeks do. I mean, the Greeks have an absolute division of the world into two um, distinct categories. There are there are, there are, there are Greeks who are you know proper people and speak Greek and civilized, yeah. and and then there's everyone else who are barbaroi, uh, you know, which mm. is basically literally people who don't speak Greek. They speak something that goes sounds like um, but the Romans are a little bit more nuanced than that and are very much more transactional. Um, and you can see this in the way that they build up their control of Italy. They don't go around sort of demonizing people as barbarians and hammering them. They, you know, make treaties with them. Um, they make them citizens. Yeah, they make them. Yeah, they, you, they, one, of the th one of the key things that, about the way Rome controls Italy is that in the late fourth century, they, they institutionalized the idea that being a citizen isn't about your ethnicity or your it becomes a sort of transferable legal status so you you know you become a citizen not because you're born a roman necessarily but because the you know you live in a community that's been granted roman citizenship or because the senate says you can be a roman citizen and caesar tried to get his legislation through as well if i remember, if i remember correctly yeah yeah uh, so it's it's very much um you know the idea of citizenship becomes a becomes a sort of exchangeable commodity that, that you can grant um, or in some cases would take away um you know as a, as a favor um and that that is one of the things that's really quite powerful about how Rome, de Rome develops because it means that there's um you know th this can be offered as a kind of carrot uh, rather than a stick you know if you see yeah. what i mean uh, to conquer people you know behave yourselves and you might get Roman citizenship and one of the other legacies of the war is that um, is the changes that, that it brings to Roman economy, the, the Roman economy and society. Because, I mean, obviously, in the immediate aftermath of war, um, you know, a large chunk of Italy is 
pretty devastated and you know Rome was very impoverished um, but it does bounce back quite quickly and the second century BC very much is economic boom time uh, because Rome is fighting all these successful wars which obviously costs a lot but they're bringing in lots of money lots of slaves um, lots of land uh, so um, and, and cheap slave labor to work it um, um, so the Roman economy becomes much more complex and much more flourishing. Um, and um, as a result, the benefits of being a Roman citizen become that much greater because obviously if you're a Roman citizen, you can you know, share the, the benefits of, of this, this economic yeah. boom much more readily. Um, it, it also transforms Roman, Rome's army because Rome is now fighting you know, these long drawn out campaigns on the other side of the Mediterranean. Uh, so it isn't quite a professional standing army yet. Um, I mean, that comes with Marius in the, in the 70s BC, uh, but it's, it's moved on a long way from just being a citizen militia. Um, so it's, it's got quite a big impact on, 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 the, on Rome's army. Um, Roman society becomes a lot more cosmopolitan because you've got a lot, a lot, a lot more connection with the, the Eastern Mediterranean and the Greek world. Um, and that, that also transforms Roman culture. So, you know, there's a much more Greek influence on, you know, Roman literature, Roman architecture, Roman art. Um, there's a, a nice anecdote about Scipio Emilianus, the adopted grandson of the man who conquered Carthage, Africanus, mm. uh, who reputedly went off on a, a visit to, a diplomatic visit to, you know, the Eastern Empire and went to places like Pergamon and Ephesus and came back absolutely wowed by them. Uh, and then looked at Rome and thought, oh dear, you know, this place is just so provincial um, and promptly declared he was going to do something about it, um, which meant that he was going to build some grand monuments for the glory of himself and his family, which is ultimately what he did. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it, the war's got a, got a lot of ramifications. It isn't just about sort of, you know, Hannibal and, and the, the military side it, it's just got these these sort of huge economic and social and cultural implications as to what happens to rome afterwards and the way it develops right so thank you so much for coming and it was a pleasure to have you on uh do you have anything yeah. you wish to do you wish to have anything you wish to promote or anything in social media where people might find you um I'm, I'm not actually much of a social media user to be honest <laughs> bit of bit of bit of a dinosaur about that like that if anyone's interested in in my publications and my recent research uh i tend to post details on, on pdfs if i can do it uh, without breaking copyright on my page on, on my page on the academia.edu website um so if anyone wants to chase up any of my research that's, that's it's just a link if send a link you to on an email after i would put it in the description when i publish oh, cool. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah, that, that would be great. Thank you so much for coming. This has been Well yeah, That well, Aged Well. And we are on Instagram under Well That Aged Well as well. We are having the second podcast on stereo, which is uh, you can find me under That Aged Well. This has been my name is Alan. This has been Well That Aged Well. And next time I have Anthony Barrett on to talk about Caligula. So that will be interesting. Said, this is my name is Adam. I see you next time. Thank you for coming. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.